Well, Gil, the last time we spoke, the documentary Rock and Roll Machine was still kind of in the planning stages. You were kind of starting to go through some memories and such. Now you've had a chance to see it on the big screen. What was that feeling like to see all that work kind of come to a head and see it on the screen like that? Well, you know, I have to credit the directors because it gave the band a chance to sort of sit in the director's chair and look through the lens that the director had. Um, Co-directors, I should say, you know, Mark Riccardelli and, and Sam Dunn. I mean, these guys are phenomenal artists in their own right. And uh, Don Allen, of course, you know, provided a great deal of, of uh, insight, as did the writers, uh, Ralph Chapman primarily, but in the initial stages, Peter Goddard. I mean, these people are super talented. And I think that uh, we were just kind of like our jaws dropped at how they were able to take what otherwise could have been a bunch of puzzle pieces that never fit together and, and weave this narrative that they um, did so brilliantly. And the feedback we've had has been just nothing short of phenomenal. When you're putting something like this together and you have archival footage from all different times and places, is it almost like putting an album together as far as, okay, well, we need to open with this track and this track works well with this one. And, you know, you almost kind of battle over how you're going to put it together. It would seem that way, but um, that's not how it happened. Uh, it, it's hard for me to even say, you know, how it unfolded. I, I, all I can say is that, uh, you know, the band, we had our ideas as a band. Some of them were okay. A lot of our ideas were completely incorrect because we're amateurs in the film business. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, like with, with, uh, with Sam Dunn and Mark, you know, if, if they were making a call at a certain point, if I was arguing, I'd say, okay, you slap me in the head if you want. Uh, you guys have been there, done that, and I love your work. And uh, I don't want to push my own ideas um, too hard. I, I think some of it with the band comes from, you know, you, if you look at, if I pulled out your high school photos, Barry, you'd be embarrassed. You know? Oh, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> that's part of that, just, just kind of being a kid and being a goofball nerd when you're growing up and the crazy ideas you had and so on it's, it's you look back at it and you just go oh man oh man we were kids what were we thinking and but you could do it with any band i mean i could pick my i could pick led zeppelin or you know my, my favorite band you know uh and, and i could look at their you know early days playing in somebody's basement or some church gig or something like that i mean i saw first time i saw led zeppelin they were playing in a, in a tiny little hall you know, five, but maybe 500 people in attendance, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. You get used to the big stadiums and stuff. And then you see, well, this is actually the seed or the genesis of the concept actually evolved in, in this, uh, the embryonic stage is, is sometimes very funny, I guess I'll say to look back at, you know? Yeah. Well, and you and Mike were both smart enough to avoid the red onesie that Rick wore. So I think that probably helped a little bit of the embarrassment. Do you guys, to this day, do you still give them, give them the, the, the gears when you see that footage? Uh, we give everybody the gears. That's part <laughs> of the triumph methodology. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's hard to retrace your steps. You know, honest, honestly, it's, uh, it's a very circuitous journey uh, in, in a rock band. And, uh, you know, I think there's a hometownism thing that all bands face that you're just not good enough, you know. And so 
I used to think as Canadians that we weren't just good enough because we were from Toronto, Canada, or from Mississauga. But, you know, when I look at other bands in the same era and I go, okay, so ZZ, let me get this straight. So ZZ Top wasn't good enough to be from Texas. They weren't good enough in, you know, they had to go to New Orleans. You know, uh, Boston wasn't good enough to be from Boston. And, and it, the list goes on and on, you know, Journey wasn't good enough in San Francisco. So I guess that hometowns kind of eat their own in a way and they want them to go, you know, and soldier in some frontier and come back and be returning heroes. I don't know if I answered your question, Barry. No, you, and it kind of reminds me of the sports world where, you know, Doug Flutie played for the Toronto Argonauts and no one gave a crap about who he was. He goes and becomes a star in the NFL, comes back, and everyone thinks he's the greatest thing in the world, right? Even the Beatles had to leave England to to become, you know, we need to be successful in the States. It all, it's always about going somewhere else and becoming successful. And Texas, I mean, that, that was such a crazy place that uh, – you know, I talk to John Gibbons all the time, and here's this guy from San Antonio, former manager of the Blue Jays, like, oh, yeah, I love Triumph, grew up on Triumph. I mean, Texas just had a special heart for a lot of Canadian bands like Triumph, didn't they? Well, I don't know about a lot, to be honest. Uh, Rush, for sure, Triumph. For Moxie? Moxie, uh, in the early stages, yes. Unfortunately, it's too bad that Buzz died, because I think mm -hmm. Moxie really had the mojo i love personally me i loved moxie i thought they were fabulous yeah uh if buzz if buzz had you know unfortunately had his tragic accident you know you i don't know if you know i played with buzz no i didn't know that at all well yeah i was in sherman and peabody with buzz with Jeez. great guys yeah so um yeah he was he was absolutely fantastic and, and, and anyway to your point you know john gibbons i love john gibbons and and uh you know, uh, from being a, from San Antonio, like he got to see the whole thing unfold there. And, uh, you know, San Antonio definitely was our, it, it has a special place in our heart. But, you know, you, you look at what San Antonio gave us, which was, you know, Corpus Christi, Dallas, Houston, Austin, you know, like Wichita Falls, you name it. Like all these other, you know, McAllen, Texas, right out at the corner, El Paso, right on the border. You know, all these, all these uh other uh great towns great groups of people uh you know they were all uh the 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 embryo was was right there at uh at san antonio um but you know i i just finished another interview earlier tonight and we were talking about the northeast and about the way triumph unfolded in the northeast and it's a similar story to the southwest it's just that it doesn't get told we don't talk about New York, we don't talk about Jersey, we don't talk about upstate New York and Albany, Rochester, Buffalo, Glens Falls, etc. Um, people tend to focus with Triumph, they tend to focus on the Southwest, you know. I suppose as they should, because that's where it started. Yeah. <laughs> Gil, you guys are starts, if I could say, you know. Yeah. Like I, can, I can tell stories about, about Louisville, for example, you know, and I can tell stories about Indianapolis. I've got I've got a lot of stories about cities that just kind of like embraced the band and just blew us up and you know we're so grateful to those fans always will be do you remember what it was like in those early days though when you didn't have you know a whole bunch of sound guys and and equipment guys and roadies and and you know here you were lugging your drums maybe up a set of stairs and you know you're trying to get them to sound right and you know but it was all worth it once the show started it didn't matter because you guys were making rock and roll right we we honestly uh, maybe we were spoiled brats. 
But we always <laughs> had we always had roadies. We never slugged our own gear ever, even Jeez. when we were in high school. So uh, you know, and by the time we were in America, we had really good sound companies and lighting and laser companies. And you know, we 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 really we we put our you know, honestly, we 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 shoved the money that we were from the the paychecks were going back into the hey, how can we put on a bigger, better show? Like we we always believed in in putting the money back in the show and making you know making the show great for the fans. Like that's why we were kind of like when you know the '90s rolled around and bands were like going on stage with like you know ten lights and everything was pared right down. We're like we, you're kind of like aren't you sure changing the audience? That was kind of our perspective, but we were following the lead from the Who and the Rolling Stones, you know. So different different frame of reference, I suppose. And it's quite interesting. I mean, you mentioned you know, the Who, the Rolling Stones. And when you think of the rock and roll genre, it's the bad boys, bad on stage, bad boys off stage. I remember we recently spoke to uh, Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. And of course, the Go-Go's had this, you know, real all good girls kind of reputation. And they were all drug addicts. And they were real. Triumph was playing hard rock music, long hair, music. But you guys were all good guys. You went against the whole stereotypical grain of what a rock and roll band was like. What was that like being out amongst your peers and stuff when they're all wanting to go snort lines for 12 hours and you guys just want to make music? You know, there's a couple of elements there. Like, first of all, as a three-piece band, like, you know, look at the guys in Rush, for example. You know, they're not a bunch of, they were never a bunch of drug addicts or anything remotely close to it. So, and I don't know why I'm using them as an example, but I, well, I do know why. I'm using it as an example because they're Canadians and they're three-piece. So I think some of it's maybe our Canadian upbringing and the parents that we had, you know, um, and, you know, so so I didn't want to be that guy that you're describing. But additionally, as a three piece band, you know, we were like athletes, like we, we had to be in good shape. We, we had to be on point. It wasn't like a five piece band where you might be able to, you know, snooze for a half of half a bar or something. Couldn't happen in Triumph. Like you had to be like really, really on top of your game as a musician. So that's part of it. I, and I think the other part of it, yeah, is probably parents and um, yeah, we were surrounded by it. And, uh, but, and we saw bands that, you know, that crashed into the drug scene and then actually emerged from it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stories like that and actually got themselves straight and they sort of survived, but you know, look at the guys dying in their fifties and sixties mm -hmm. generation, you know, like just great, great people, great uh, talents and so on that just pass away 20 years for 30 years before they should simply because they just burned the candle at so far so hard at both ends that it just human body to take it as a band too i mean you guys could write a great pop rock song like you know say goodbye or something like that but you listen to the lyrics of a lot of triumph songs and you throw them into the year 2021 and it's amazing how much what you guys were writing about 40 years ago fits so well with today's world, whether it be fight the good fight, you know, ordinary man, uh, just listening to some of these songs, going, wow, this is just so 2021. You guys, you know, whether either the world was just as bad back then, or you guys could see that where the world was heading. I think we were kids and we wrote some good lyrics. Um, it's an interesting comment. Um, I was talking the other day about lyric writing and how I think everyone from, you know, Bob Dylan and, and um, you know, Bob Dylan on down and probably 
Lennon and McCartney on down and you know almost everyone I think as a musician they're embarrassed by their worst lyrics and uh, you know so you know we're no we're no exception to that rule so if I pick any band that I'm I'm a fan of myself uh, you know there's go inevitably there will be some horrible lyrics uh, that were rushed and which just weren't thought out and the, the lyric was going in a bad direction but they wanted to finish the song so you get these uh filler tracks and um then the songs go the other direction where you've hit on something that's a little bit magic i think at the time you don't quite realize it mm -hmm. uh i i remember still being very critical of the lyrics which i now look back on and say gee those those were some of the best lyrics you know that that we were capable of um you know i i i know uh i was critical pro probably more critical of my own lyric writing but i would also also critical of rick's lyric writing back I go well you were really a harsh critic um because some of it, it I do think you're right I think some of it stands the test of time and is is kind of cool and when I've seen the impact you know like a song like you mentioned fight the good fight uh the and those are Rick's, Rick's lyrics by the way um when I see the impact that they've had on so many people right up to today the letters that I still get on a day-to-day day -day basis at Metalworks um from people I realize wow I guess you know, lyrics are not for the writer to judge. Like they're not for the artist to judge. They're for the audience to judge. And the audience found those to be great lyrics. And so, you know, almost like a reflection again, back to the movie and, and like watching it from the fans perspective, I look at it and I go, you know what? I actually really, I actually really love those lyrics, but I love them far more now than when we were grinding through the recording sessions and we were going, is this guitar sound okay? What about the snare drum? Is it too loud? You know, like, uh, what about that? Is that, is that the right uh rhyming couplet there you know it was all the all these you, know, you it's like you're putting a wall like a stonemason putting together a fireplace and you're wondering whether it was this stone fit here or is it you know not quite right or should i chisel another piece off it's got too much mortar or not enough you know it's it's that creative process and it's like over the over time as it goes by that's when you get a lens into whether it really had any merit or it was a piece of junk and how amazing was it to have your own studio in that you could guys could create in the studio where there would be time. I mean, you mentioned Lennon McCartney. They would write a song, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, the first time they'd ever hear that song. It was pretty much complete. And it's like, now we're going to record it. Did you guys do a lot of the developing like from the bare bones in studio because oh, you owned your own studio? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the studio was built and it was a great creative tool. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a good thing that I think we made the decision to build a studio um, in retrospect.
musical. And one thing I noticed from Triumph album to Triumph album is that you've got a different drum sound pretty much every album, right? And it's, it's like, I can, as soon as I hear your drums, I'm like, I know, okay, that's Thunder 7, you know, or I know that's Rock and Roll Machine because I know your drum sound. Did you, did you fight yourself over your, like, was that something that you became obsessed with or did you just go with whatever when, you know, okay, that sounds good. We'll go with that on this album. No, I obsessed over it. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, it's too old, too soon, too smart, too late, because when I look at what happened, you know, to recording technology, which I understand fluently, um, I realized that I think the drummers uh, really got the short end of the stick. Um, and what ended up happening in, in, in technology recording drums is we had a great way to record drums in the 60s. And it was very organic and very natural. Um, in the 70s, when we got into multi-track recording and we got into uh, more effects-based processing and so on, um, we started to, you know, get away from the garden and we fell into certain traps. Uh, not so much as drummers, but the engineers at the time did. And they started to think that um, killing the uh, natural tone of the instrument was actually a benefit. And uh, so you got into these, you know, very, uh, to me now, you know, kind of sterile sounds. And and it wasn't just, you know, Triumph that was subjected to it. I mean, the Beatles, you know, had some horrific drum sounds, yeah. um, in my opinion. And, uh, and basically, you know, I, almost all the bands did. I mean, there there's exceptions like Led Zeppelin, John Bonham, never, never, uh, never succumbed. Uh, and I don't know the inside story on it. I could ask Eddie Kramer because he's a buddy of mine and he did, well, you know, some of the recording. But, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I look at, you know, Ian Pace for me. Yeah. For example, that's how rock drums should be recorded. Um, and, 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 and Bonham, of course. And uh, all the rest of us got pulled into some, you know, awkward situations mm -hmm. as technology evolved and... And then, the, and then the god awful thing that happened in the late '80s, which was quantization, which immediately should have been, you know, shot, uh, and unfortunately wasn't. So it existed, and it still exists to this day, and it's turned some really great drummers into robots. Mm -hmm. uh, the best studio drummers in the world now, to me, they just sound like drum machines because they've lost all semblance of, you know, an oily feel. It's just gone. It's the robotic. Looking back at all the Triumph albums, do you look back at one specific and say, that was my best drum sound? I wish I had that on all of yes. them. 
Now, Which one? Interrupt Allied Forces, I would say, because it was all natural. Yeah. And uh, there was nothing, there was nothing manufactured about that. And the drum tones were, I, I think, stand up. Um, but as we move forward, we start, as I said, we started to move into the sample era and all of it. And I can remember like the Akai sampler that every engineer had to have, oh, we've got to use samples and bonus. And that continued for many, many, many years. And then quantization was all part of it. And then Pro Tools and digitization, which doesn't sound as good as analog and shaving beats here and there to try to make it metronomically perfect. Whereas music really needs a little bit of an ebb and flow. So speeding up and slowing down is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. It, when, when, when it's done artfully, I, I should say, I mean, yes, you don't have a drummer that slows down as a hacker or speeds up because he's a hacker, but mm -hmm. you know, listen to, you know, listen to like go, I hate to keep going back to, you know, uh, John Bonham and Ian Pace, but go listen, they speed up and slow down all over. Oh the yeah. Place. Especially when you're live, right? There are times you want to push that song and you're, you're already being driven by this crowd. So it's just a natural instinct. You want, you want to push the song. So let me, okay. I know you probably will totally disagree, but I just loved, uh, Thunder seven. I like the gated snare and I like the toms and but see that was the age I was in when you know I remember the first time I heard Spellbound I had my first Sony Walkman I was on a TTC bus coming home from work and Q107 had their top 10 at 10 and whoa it just it just that sound blew me away that that you guys were able to get I love that drum sound, but I do love Allied Forces. That would definitely be number. What's your least favorite, by the way? Well, you know, I mean, I, just to go back to that point, like the the drum sounds on on Thunder Seven. I'm not saying that I I didn't like them at the time. I thought they were they were smoking hot. Yeah. And um, you know, in terms of the era, yeah, I would suppose you're right, man. There was a lot of sock uh, to the kick, a lot of sock to the snares, and a lot of throat in the tom toms. Mm -hmm. um, so a big drum sound, let's say. Um, it's funny. I think it's like, it's like, I'm not a wine drinker. I'm a scotch drinker. So I'll refer to scotch. It's kind of like, there's no such thing as bad scotch. So to me, there's kind of no such thing as bad drum sounds. Like I just love drums. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are great scotches and there are great. Yes. Drum sounds. Well, yeah. So what, what made you, and I'm sorry, I know you probably got more things to do. What made you use the electronic drums in, uh, don't love anybody else, but me. Uh, you know, I think it's really our front of house sound mixer, Harry Witz, like he kind of fell in love with uh, a blend. So when we would play live in the latter tours, there was really two drum sets playing at all time. There was me playing and then there was an electronic set of drums that were triggered by what I was playing. It's very common now using the triggers. You see drummers doing that all the time. But we were, Harry was ahead of his time. Like wow. I would never have been clever enough to realize that was a strategy, but he was. And we would go in arenas and people would hear my drums and they would go, I've never heard drums like that. Yeah. <laughs> Your kick drum makes the walls of the arena shake.
well, yeah, that was that was Harry's wizardry, you know. Jeez. And, Genius. Uh, yeah, we're still buddies. I still talk to him all the time. And, uh, you know, he went on to become like ACDC wouldn't do a tour without Harry coming out and tuning the PA system. That's how great Harry Witz is. It's the 40th anniversary of Allied Forces. So I know there's going to be a great uh, box set. And I'm really looking forward to this. That's your favorite drum sound. Now, having your own studio, I would think you have access to the masters of everything you recorded. So do you have just the stripped down drums that if you one day wanted to remix, you could tweak and all of a sudden we can hear thunder seven with more like the drums would sound on allied forces i suppose you're right yes i just gave you an idea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i think that would be really cool don't you i mean you listen to some of the later stuff uh, and all of a sudden you know you've got you've got that you know, you've got the technology right in our in our box set this is an interesting one in our box set um there's a vinyl record that I think is titled Live in Cleveland. And so that was a mobile recording, but it's really got some amazing tones. Um, you can listen to that vinyl record and you can go, man, I, I, can, I can feel like I'm in that concert hall right now. And, you know, the... Um, the room tone that's added to what the band was the band was doing you know the decay times and the reverb times and so on they they really bring out the, the it's it's almost like cooking it's, it's, it brings out the flavor yeah. if you will you know um as opposed to some of the manufactured crapola that um you know and i'm not putting down recording engineers i love recording engineers but i i think most of the most of them would agree with me, the guys that have really done it for a living, that there's been some some tendencies and, and pieces of technology that were great. And there were other, you know, styles and tendencies and tech, technical approaches and so on that were horrible. And the industry was finding its way and the musicians and engineers were finding their way. So, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag of nuts really at the end of the day. Gil, just before we wrap up, as you go through so much of this footage and, you know, looking back, I'm sure there are moments where you guys are all looking at each other and laughing. There are times you're going, oh, crap, I can't believe we did this. And there's probably some some bad memories that come through as well. But at the end of the day, what, how cathartic was this for you personally and as a group to kind of put this all together? Oh, it was tremendously cathartic. I mean, um, I mean, really, the one thing that was magic about Triumph is is we never had any bad times until the end with Ron Nevison and, and, and Rick leaving. And um, so to go as long as we went basically on, you know, I don't know, kind of musical steroids, just everything was just, we, we were just pedaling fast on that bike and we were kind of at the top of our game and it just kept going and going and going and the fans were supporting it. It was just like, it was in, intoxicating, really, how well everything went. And, you know, all good things, you know, uh, end at a certain point. So, you know, the breakup in retrospect, it, it's, it, to me, it was just, it was meant to be.
actually feel like in a way, uh, had Rick not left the band, I would have, because, you know, my, my, as I said in the documentary, my father passed away, it broke my heart and it broke my will. And uh, we were just extremely close. I'm an only child. And uh, my mother uh, was so tremendous for me growing up. Uh, there was just no way that I would tour with a rock band uh, after she lost her husband, uh, you know, in her later years and leave her alone in Toronto. I was not prepared to do that. So there was going to be another triumph tour anyway, whether Rick, Rick left or not, it wasn't going to make, make any difference. And, you know, when we tried to, you know, three years later or whatever, and we, we, we recorded with Phil and that was a great experience love Phil X, phenomenal guitar player, loved working with him, still were buddies. But I've, you know, uh, said to Phil, you know, you didn't get the you didn't get the best of Mike and I because at that stage of the game, our lives had changed for different reasons. So it was it wasn't like it was a half-hearted effort musically, but it was you I don't know, you just can't um you can't recapture what i'm going to say kids because we were kids you can't rap recapture what kids have when you're in your 30s you know uh so you, you just can't move backwards you can't move backwards in time and, and, and that I, was I, the situation we were in like i was dedicated to i'm going to stay here i'm going to make sure my mom is okay uh, i love music i want to be in the studio I, I i don't want i didn't really i didn't want triumph to end but yet i was there's this, this dichotomy well you, you also are saying you know, I'm looking at like Iron Maiden who are, you know, in Tokyo and then they're in Germany and then they're in, you know, San Jose, California and they're, you know, or whoever, pick a band, you know, but one of our contemporaries. And I go, I can't do that. I won't do that. I'm not interested in doing that, you know. And then subsequently, of course, I got interested in other things like I've started with recording then I got into recording technology. Then I got into sound back into my love for sound and lighting. And then I got into music education, which is now my number one passion. So my life moved on and I, I love the whole, the whole triumph experience, but, um, and I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change a thing, but it was over for me at that stage. There was no way I was going to go forth and be in a, a rock drummer and tour the world and just keep around and around and around the same horn. Wouldn't, wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and, and as much as fans would love to see Triumph reform and put out five more albums and tour the world again, you know, there's a part of me, and I grew up such a huge Triumph fan, that this is Triumph's legacy. Like, you, you guys, this is what you are. The Beatles had their, you know, their 10 years of albums. Triumph had theirs. And that's that's what you, I mean, you know, if you did a show here and there, like you did the Sweden show and the little get-together for your fans, awesome. But... For me personally, you guys don't have to record another album. You don't have to go on another world tour. I have it all in here, and I have it all in my my vinyl and you know my memories. That this is what Triumph is. Is is that something that gives you guys peace as a group to know that you know we don't have to do anything right now? It, it does to me. I mean, I'm going to give you two answers that are I don't know if they're answers or they're just funny anecdotes or not funny anecdotes, but. You know, I was talking about Johnny Winter earlier today, and I go, Johnny Winter was a hero of mine. And I only needed to see Johnny Winter once for him to be a hero. Like, I love his voice, and I love his guitar, because I'm at, at my roots, you know, like I'm a blues man. That's that's my background in music. And, and Johnny Winter is just embedded in my head at his absolute peak, 
and I yeah. can see and hear them in my mind's eye. And, and, you know, when Triumph, you know, then, you know, when I got a little older and Triumph took off and we ended up, you know, in playing arenas and Johnny Winter opened for us a whole pile of times. And it was almost tragic for me mm -hmm. to watch a guy and he was still great, but it was, I looked at it and I go, geez, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to, I don't want to stay in the boxing ring until I'm opening for somebody, you know? And, and then, and of course, you know, tragically, he's not, not with us anymore, but it was really a sad, you know, kind of experience for me to, to see that. And I thought, could he not have moved on with his life? You know, he, he did so much in music and did he need to stay on stage, you know, quite that long? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think, you know, at a certain point, uh, that was what hit me is like, I think this is, it just happened to, you know, it was my father was the trigger for it. And then wanting to make sure my mom was okay. Um, you know, was the, was the, the, the net change, I guess, in my, in my perspective, which made me want to stay in music, but not travel and uh, not looking back on it. I'm, I'm very happy with that. And now, you know, as far as touring, you know, people ask me about touring. Well, you know, because of my interest in technology and education, like I've moved into, you know, the, the areas of augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, all those technologies. And I've actually, with our lighting director from uh, Triumph's lighting director, Paul Dexter, um, who is the, the most magical lighting director, I think, in the music industry in the last 40 years, we're working on a mixed reality tour for Triumph. I can't promise it's going to happen. We're working really hard on it. We're working on some technology that's, we feel, superior to anything that's been done thus far with holograms or, or uh, you know, some of the, I'll, I'll call it even post hologram offerings that are starting to come online. We have our own concept, which we feel really passionate about. We think we're going to be able to bring a triumph to her back to life. Um, that's going to just blow people's minds, but wow. Whether we, whether we succeed or fail, it, it, it's kind of, that's the fun of it. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of like when we started triumph, we succeed. Wow. But could have we failed? Well, yeah, because everything we did prior to that failed. You know, every Rick Emmett band failed, every Mike Levine band failed, and every Gil Moore band failed. And if you if you look at any 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 other band that was successful, it's the same thing. Go yeah. and look at any band that succeeded and look at what happened beforehand. They couldn't get arrested. And many of them, they couldn't even get arrested when they actually had the band together. They had to go to 10 record labels and finally beg, and finally one record label would sign them. And so it's funny the way that works. Yeah. You know, it's just so funny. And you look at bands like Boston that had one of the biggest first records in the world, couldn't get a record deal, you know? Um, you know, uh, BTO, same thing, huge band, couldn't get a record deal, you know? Tom Petty. Album was produced by their managers, you know, on yep. Moon Records, you know, homemade record label. Look at a Rush, one of the greatest bands of all time. It's like, that's the way the music business works. And uh, that's the way art works, really. I think the creative world. Absolutely. So I'm still in the art world. We're still doing funky things that, you know, may seem like they're very, uh, they're aspirational as opposed to fundamental and, uh, you know, uh, something that you could predict on an operational level they're intangibles let's say well hey man that's where we're headed that's the promised land i love it just keep going and, and the great thing is because of the documentary because of things like the the box set of allied forces uh 
children of people that went to see you back in the 70s and 80s, their kids are now growing up to be Triumph fans. And you're getting this whole new generation of Triumph fans, which must be really cool for you guys. Yeah, I know. I get some of the letters, you know, and some of the anecdotes. And uh, yeah, it's it's unbelievable, the young generation. And I just, I'm just, again, fans, I'm just so grateful because like every musician, you start out and no one wants to hear your stuff, you know? So, uh, you know, I was not exempt from that club. Uh, and Mike wasn't and Rick wasn't. We, we joke about each other. My, Mike, actually, his bands were the best. Like Mike was ahead of ahead of us because he had eight by 10 glossies and his band had matching suits. So he was definitely a cut above. <laughs> but, we, you know, in, in retrospect, it's uh, it's funny how you somehow get out of the garage or the basement and out of the, you know, the high school dance and, and you, you finally find a formula that, that, that works. It's a crazy story, man. That's why they make documentaries. Absolutely. So where can Triumph fans see the documentary? Where and when? And uh, also let us know about the box set. So the documentary in Canada, 2022. Um, right now, we're just lining up to do the Philadelphia International Film Festival. I believe that's next month. And uh, of course, we did uh, Toronto International Film Festival in September, which was an awesome privilege and, and honor. Um, so in Canada, it will be on free TV on Bell Media's uh, national network over CTV. Uh, so anybody can watch it for free on CTV whenever they broadcast it. And uh, then it will immediately go to their streaming system, tr Crave. Um, cool. And it'll be on, it'll exist on Crave for, uh, you know, as far as the eye can see. Um, in America and the rest of the world, those deals are in negotiation and uh, not completed. So I don't know. As far as a theatrical release, um, again, we're not sure if there will be a theatrical release or not, or there will be a limited theatrical release. There's been a lot of different ideas uh, that have been put forward, and it's it's really in the hands of the film distributor uh, in America and, uh, and, and Banger Films, of course. So those are things that the, those folks are working on and they're great, they're great at what they're doing and they're making great decisions. So we're lucky to be going along for the ride. Gil, it, uh, it's been great to be a part of the ride, uh, following this band for so many years and uh, getting me through so many troubled times as a teenager. Uh, and it's great to have gotten to know you uh, all these years later and have had these great conversations with you. Thanks so much for doing this and uh, all the best. And I'm looking forward to this virtual tour. This is looking cool. Yeah, my pleasure, Barry. Great speaking with you again and uh, all the best. Remember we won these at the fair? Oh, that's my old shirt, man. I think I had the coolest one, though. Well, let's start making them and see if we can sell them. So bootleg their merch. Yep. And make some money.